All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Prairie Farm Podcast. We're here again with another very generous person from Pheasants Forever. Are you starting to feel that warm, fuzzy feeling every time you hear Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever? Because these are some of the best people on the planet. And, uh, you know, in the you know, modern age of man, or I guess you could say postmodern age of man. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the, the number one thing people are most concerned with is how fiscally responsible is a nonprofit organization. And I will say this, we said it when we talked to Bob St. Pierre, I'll say it again. You will not find a better, more fiscally responsible nonprofit than pheasants forever. And the reason I bring that up so much is because you got to be good people to not let the money corrupt you or, mm. or, uh, or start chasing after things that, you know, wasn't the original intention. They, they stick to their guns and what their mission is here at Pheasants Forever, and I believe it is because they are an organization built with some of the finest people on the planet. Now, to follow that, you might start thinking to yourself, you may have done some research since the last time that we recorded with Bob. You might be saying, Hoxie native seeds pheasants forever wait hoxie native seeds they have a pheasant on their logo pheasants are non-native to north america that's right they're from asia and uh, you might be thinking then well what on earth is the deal with this whole controversy right this whole uh (laughs) this counterintuitive pairing but uh I'm going to answer your question here just to kick this podcast off. Nicholas, feel free to jump in and correct me. You know, I'm I'm new enough here yet that I may not have all the details right. And, you know, it's kind of like your family's business and all. But but, uh, pheasants are critically important to Hoxie native seeds because they were the original inspiration for Hoxie native seeds. Our founder, Carol Hoxbergen, he was uh, sitting on his porch one evening after a hard day's work as a corn and bean farmer down in South Central Iowa. And he uh, was just kind of sitting there taking in the, you know, my, my father-in-law calls it the golden hour, right? As you're, mm. you know, trending towards dusk, you know, the, the, if, you're, if you're a deer hunter, you might call it last light, right? He's sitting there just basking in that, those cooler temperatures and, and uh uh, that's the kind of the critter hour, you know, everything's starting to come back out and move around and uh, the diurnal critters are going to bed. The nocturnal critters are coming out and the crepuscular critters are who knows what they're doing. They're always doing something <laughs> weird. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a former biology teacher here. Sorry, I, I get a little uh, nerd out on the vocab. But uh, he was sitting there basking in the glory of the golden hour. And he saw this little group of pheasants come out of his cornfield, and uh, they started trotting along as pheasants do, you know, great runners. And uh, then they took just a little kind of a hop flight across the road and, and sailed down into the ditch where he saw all this tall grass. And while he's sitting there, he thought to himself, boy, why, what was so bad about my field? You know, why did, why did you uh, choose to go over there? And uh, through having his conversation with a, a friend, you know, a few days later, who he thought maybe knew more about such things, said that's because the preferred habitat for those birds is across the road. And uh, Carol took that personally, and he started putting prairie back on his farm. Wow. And uh, so, so here we are today with Pheasants Forever. And now to further answer my, that question, 
You'll notice I said put prairie back on his farm. That's because Iowa used to be, I believe, right around 80% prairie. Uh, today, I believe that number is less than 1%. And uh, because of that change, so here's another good biology term for you, niche, the term niche, some people say niche. I like to say there's a right way to say it and there's an annoying way to say it. Niche <laughs> is the annoying way to say it. All my former students, that's for you. But so uh, uh, niche, the, the niche of each animal or even each plant, it could be anything that's part of an ecosystem, uh, those got all mixed up when we changed the surface area of our state and not just in Iowa, but much of the Midwest. And a lot of those critters that were once here are not here anymore. They're maybe extinct in some cases, but in more cases, they're just kind of chopped up into different parts of habitat around the country. But it left the door open for a newcomer, right? We lost the prairie chicken in Iowa and uh, lost some of our grouse and and uh, left the left the door open for a good ground nesting bird that could handle the Iowa winters and uh, at some point right around 1900s early 1900s I believe pheasants were brought to North America I want to say the first state that got pheasants was the state of Oregon up in northwest uh, United States and then Iowa not long after that uh, started getting their first pheasants uh, here in, in, in our state, and uh, they've done well. They've, they've taken up those open niches, and uh, they're sticking around, and so they're worth preserving. And so an uh, organization like Pheasants Forever is a very welcome uh, helper, a very welcome ally to helping keep life on this modified landscape, and uh, one that you can't ever really recover what you once had, so we try to continue with the best that we can have going forward. And Pheasants Forever has certainly helped that. And the guy uh, who's here with us today has been a part of that journey, I think from doing a little bit of background research here, uh, Mr. Howard Vincent, the president and CEO of Pheasants Forever. Was it 1987 when you first came on at, at Pheasants Forever? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I came out as an employee uh, in, 19, in July of 1987. Uh, I had been a volunteer a couple years prior to that. Sure. Um, so, you know, the organization was formed in 1982. And so probably about two years in, wow. I came. Uh, and I came from a, an accounting background and was uh, uh, did some pro bono work to help them set up some accounting systems. That's for awesome. That chapter model. That, that, how, did, how did you hear about that? It doesn't seem like those circles overlap very much. No, no, there wasn't a Venn diagram that worked. <laughs> at that point, so. so what you need is a connector. And so there was a friend of mine who was in the tax department of the accounting firm I worked for. He walked down one day and said he had volunteered myself and himself. <laughs> uh, right? And I, I had that re same reaction. Like, you volunteered me, right? This isn't <laughs> army. This isn't, you know, two steps backwards, everybody else. And, but anyway, um, so he volunteered me to uh, give a weekend, go out there, meet uh, Jeff Finden, who is the first CEO of the organization uh, at the national headquarters. And I'm, I'm not doing the air quotes, but you can see them in my mind <laughs> um, to help them set up an accounting system. And sure. at that moment, uh, I met Jeff in his home 
in his basement, wow. which was the national headquarters. Wow, wow. that's <laughs> cool. And I bumped my head on the ceiling going down. <laughs> um, I met the national staff, which was his, um, at the moment, his uh, eight-year-old daughter and six-year-old son <laughs> who were stuffing envelopes and licking stamps. And I was absolutely giving my friend the sideway glance going national headquarters uh, and, and it was even you know in my mind you know pheasants for who right right um, but anyway we so we gave them some time we set up an accounting system for those 12 chapters right this was a wholly unique model that chapters would raise money through the classic banquet mm-hmm. yep. uh, model uh, but they would retain essentially 100 percent of the net yes. fundraising and then deploy those dollars locally. So, yep. and I was a hunter, uh, and God bless my friend for, and and he's still, you know, thirty six later, he's a huge supporter of what we do out That's there. Awesome. So, a shout out to he knows who he is. I've abused <laughs> him enough over the years. <laughs> but so that you know, that's where the kind of the pro bono work started for a number wow. of years, and then they evolved very quickly. Um, and then in nineteen eighty seven. Um, uh, Jeff had asked me to come to a breakfast meeting with him. And this is a, this is a little bit of a spooky part. Um, and so I work downtown Minneapolis. Sure. Um, he said, we're going to meet like Thursday morning. Let's have breakfast out in this White Bear Lake area. So about, a, you know, 45 minutes away from downtown Minneapolis. But I'm driving through the uh, most congested traffic area in Minneapolis-St. Paul the confluence of all the major highways, 94, Highway 35. Mm. It's called Spaghetti Junction. Yep, Spaghetti Junction. Downtown St. Paul. And as I'm driving through that, on my way to this meeting, uh, Rooster Pheasant flies over the top of the freeway interchange. Hmm. Out out in the middle of all that. And it was, wow, that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, that was, so I get to breakfast. I have no idea what this is about. Uh, Jeff says uh we've posted a director of finance position uh either you take it and he or and he handed me a six eight inches of resumes and said are you find the person wow who's going to be the next wow. director of finance so you either take sounds it like blackmail I don't right, know. <laughs> right but all of a sudden all of a sudden i'm now i'm picturing this rooster flying over the and it was kind of spooky yeah wow you know yep. and i i asked That's him about that because he's St. Paul native, and uh, he said, yeah, there's grain elevators down there along the railroad tracks, and they, you know, so there's there's birds down there, you know, surviving down there in that space, but had no idea. So it took me yeah. a little while. I love what I did in public accounting, sure. uh, but I had just gone through uh, a merger. So our accounting firm had just merged with uh, what today is KPMG. Okay. Um, so uh, it, at the moment, it was the right time yeah. A little burned uh, out from a merger. Yeah. And, and it just, you know, looking forward, uh, you know, there's a lot of personal reasons. I had a, a newborn uh, who was all of, you know, six, seven months. And when you're in the tax season, you know, you see your, I, I saw yeah. this little baby boy in the crib in the morning when I left. And I saw him in the evening in the crib mm-hmm. when I came home. And, That's you know, hard. so now it's, you know, what's, the best thing for me professionally what's the best thing yeah. for my family yeah um is this what i'm aspiring to be you know right. in that accounting track and again i love the clients i love the business um but i will say 
so it was a tough decision, but when I came to Pheasants Forever, it was also a, going to be a job. And the handshake was I would stay for five years. I would build the infrastructure that I thought was important that we had talked about uh, with the work that I had done with Jeff prior to that. Um, but it was a job, and I was right. it was going to be finite. The the corny part of this is I was about two years into that handshake when I started to believe mm. that this was you know things I did in accounting were necessary evils, uh, and now right. the things that we were doing here at this organization were meaningful. Wow. Um, I wasn't uh, you know make no mistake I wasn't planting seeds or um, I wasn't planting trees but those things were getting done right, right native right. prairie was being put on that landscape the, the yeah there was something meaningful happening here in conservation and then hanging around with uh, the wildlife biologists the volunteers absolutely mm. in those chapters who yeah. gave their time every single day and uh, raising money, putting those dollars in the ground uh, was contagious. And I recognize that this could be uh, a, a lifelong uh, wow. journey here. So I, and it, I know it sounds corny, but um, and I would say, you know, the time and energy that you put in, I put as much time and energy, but it was still under my control. Sure. Right. Yep. So, I mean, I forced, you know, when, as the kid, and I had added another child. Uh, that following year and those two young boys, you know, I, I stayed home and coached. Yeah. Right. Whether yeah. it was baseball, football, basketball, hockey, or whatever that oh, was. Cool. Yeah. Um, but then the balance of those times, you know, they got to go with me to the Iowa state meeting and, that's you know, cool. when we're meeting the whole weekend, those characters got to swim in the pool and hang out with <laughs> yeah. mom. And, you know, so memories. we managed, I think a better quality of life and then had a greater impact yeah. on the resource itself. Yeah. I, I'm really curious. So uh, it was founded in 82. You started volunteering in 84, still in his basement for those two years. Yes. Well, between 84 and 87, something happened where he hired a full-time uh, CFO and probably maybe another, a couple other employees. What in the world happened in those three years? For so think about a, the, we call it the hockey stick curve. Okay. Right? Okay. Yep. You know, the first two years. So, they were two years in, they had 12 chapters, about a thousand members. Um, the distance between that meeting that morning in his basement to create an accounting system for 12 chapters, uh, we presented six months later, roughly, um, might've been eight months later, um, relevant, uh, at the, again, the national convention, which was out in Wilmer, Minnesota, um, arrived out there, uh, and there's hundreds and hundreds of people. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm waiting to meet 12 to 24 people, right? 12 wow. treasurers, 12 presidents, and there's hundreds of people. And talking with Jeff going, boy, all these, you know, who else is here? And he goes, well, this is our chapters, you know. We mm -hmm. have, you know, all, I think, you know, we've got 50 of the 60 chapters here. And it was like, well, wait a second. You said there was 12 chapters. And he goes, well, we've grown. Wow. And I said, okay, well... Jeff, the accounting system's obsolete. <laughs> right now. And he, you got to know Jeff. Jeff patted me on the back, said, well, you got to present something. And he walked away. 
<laughs> so, I mean, that's how fast they were growing. That's awesome. Right? I mean, the empowerment yeah. of crazy. allowing local volunteers to not only raise the money, but to deploy it. Yeah. You know, wow. with their needs within their counties, um, they can determine how best to utilize those dollars. So the efficiency, uh, the empowerment was there. Um, I, you know, we presented, you know, with a smile uh, that, you know, the system will work for you at this moment, but we're going to go back and retool this. Mm-hmm. And we did. We went back and created a system that they could, you know, scale up and work with ongoing. And in fact, it honestly, it hasn't changed really significantly the, the physical tool itself sure. even today. Uh, we've got a cash management cool. system that manages all 750 chapters. You know, we wow. capture it electronically. And uh, so chapters, those volunteers can go out anytime, 24-7, look at their bank information, look at their financial information. Wow. Um, so we scaled it up so yeah. Yeah. it would work right. long term. But uh, yeah, to your question, they were growing just exponentially. And I think when I came on, in 87 i think it was about a one million dollar organization right there they were delivering uh you know pretty close to a hundred thousand acres of habitat annually which was just amazing for such a young organization Um, a lot of it was food plot a lot of it uh you know we hadn't yet really moved into what what we have evolved into as you know what are the choke points uh, for pheasants and quail, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's grasslands. It's right. nesting cover, brood rearing cover. Mm-hmm. At that moment, we were, uh, I would say, a food plot organization. So we were uh, deploying uh, discard corn, right, for winter cover, mm-hmm. uh, food sources. But really, you know, as we added more wildlife biologists to the team, recognizing that's not really the choke point of why we don't have more pheasants out there on that landscape. So evolving into what's the most meaningful thing we can deploy our resources to, it's grasslands, right? It's Mm, native native flower, native species, forbs out there, uh, looking at structure, uh, looking for a diverse uh, biodiversity on that landscape out there, not only nesting cover, but you know, okay, you want windbreaks and how are they structured and how, where are they located? Right. So these birds who don't want to fly, I mean, they're just, they're going to evolve out of wings, I think, at the <laughs> end of the day, um, you know, so they can get from shelter to food and back without exposing themselves right. to avian predators. Um, so all this probably best practices are now uh, coming a part of the organization and we're not as concerned about the quantity mm. of acres or habitat we're putting out there we're we're getting more concerned about the quality yeah right and the greater impact of uh having having really delivered something for that resource yeah that's well said you know you're hitting on something here that i've always been impressed by and whenever i talk to somebody from pheasants forever and i don't necessarily know what their background of study is but they're well versed in the science that goes into uh the the mission right the the target which is improving uh, life for pheasants here in, in our country. And, uh, did, you know, as somebody who kind of got dragged into, into the uh, fight, so to speak, 
did you start picking up on that kind of knowledge like really rapidly as you were like sitting here talking to biologists and having all these terms flowing, you know, like brood rearing, <laughs> you know, like that, that's a, that's a high level, that's a high level yeah, science vocab term. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the talent that we were bringing into the organization absolutely uh, would rub off. And, you mm-hmm. know, if you think about, you know, the, the team that we built, um, we also have to communicate with those local chapters and make a case. And if you think about our volunteers, none of them are right. typically wildlife professionals. Right. So you, you you can't give them the biology book uh, or the wildlife management book. You're, you've got to talk in uh, layman's terms. Right? Layman's terms, terms about here's why we're doing it. Here's the need. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our field reps who worked with our chapters, especially in the first uh, 10, 15 years of the organizations, every one of them was a wildlife professional. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, even though they were helping chapters raise money, put people in the door, they were as big of fundraisers as anybody in our in our business, their talent set was, uh, background was wildlife management. Um, mm. And to this day, you know, we've evolved. And at this moment, I think we have 450 employees. Um, I think 350 of them are wildlife professionals. So. So wow. this will scare you. Um, we have more wildlife professionals than any other organization or governmental entity in the United States. Wow. We have more wildlife professionals than any state department of natural resources combined, all 50. Wow. And we have more wow. than U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's insane. Wow. Right. We just <laughs> kind of passed that. We were like number two behind U.S. Fish and Wildlife. We now just passed that. Wow. That's curve. insane. Well, I know. So... Uh, we work a lot with the NRCS, and yeah. the NRCS works a lot with Veterans Forever. And um, I would say 95%, probably closer to like 99%. Every once in a while I get one that's a little questionable, but you, they get mixes. These NRCS offices get mixes. Usually if they have a, a chapter, Veterans Forever chapter, they're going to get it from the Veterans Forever chapter. And those mixes are pristine. They yes. are some of the best mixes you'll ever see. So the the guys on the field, they know what they're doing. The the ladies and gentlemen out there, they are good at what they're doing. It's yeah. really and, cool to see. You know, um, and I'll say this: so um, we just uh, in this in these troubled times in the last two years, mm-hmm. um, scary things have happened to all of us, in both personally and professionally, mm-hmm. uh, organization wide, uh, with this pandemic. Um, so in a period where we lost 500 banquets, mm-hmm. um, just didn't occur. We lost 20,000 memberships. Mm. Uh, so in the year ended, uh, our year ends June 30th, uh, last year, 21, we set a record in revenues. Wow. wow. Uh, we passed $92 million as an organization. More importantly, we set a record in habitat delivery. Wow. 2.2 million acres got done last Whoa. year alone. That's incredible. We're currently on track coming into this 2022 year end to break that record, we'll break $100 million as an organization and break the record in habitat delivery. And here's, and this, this is the punchline, we do none of that by ourselves. Our partners like Natural Resource Conservation Service, the Department of Natural Resources in, in 30 plus states are all partners in those wildlife positions out there. They mm-hmm. uh, help with grant dollars, funding dollars, uh, offices, vehicles, position uh, management on those. They're Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever employees, but none of that happens without those partnerships and those dollars out there, and including the uh, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Uh, our corporate partners, 
put their dollars in. Uh, there, and there's so much more happening, you know, well beyond, you know, the, the hunting and shooting community, the, mm-hmm. you know, being relevant to a broader constituency. Uh, and this, this is bigger than pheasants and this is bigger yeah. than quail. I mean, we're talking about water, soil, yeah. monarchs, pollinators, sage grouse, lesser prairie chickens. Climate. Um, climate, carbon sequestration, all these things are benefits of those grasslands. Yeah. Right. So that's, you know, if you if you want to put up that Venn diagram and put grasslands as the big intersection, yeah. that's what this is all about. And to be relevant to someone who doesn't hunt, we are. Mm-hmm. To be relevant to Absolutely. someone who doesn't shoot, we are. Absolutely. Um, so it's uh, it's it's exciting and uh, there's more opportunities now. I'm incredibly excited. Uh, even now with the opportunities in, and I'll, I'll say large agriculture and the commodity space um, that didn't exist even yeah. probably two, three years ago. But to have new partners come on over that period, including the National Corn Growers, uh, Cotton Inc. Uh, boy, I'm going to feel bad because I'm going to leave somebody out. Uh, sorghum, <laughs> Chekhov. Yeah. I mean, these are, you know, national commodity groups uh, and we're, you know, we're obviously working with some of them at the state level as well. But um, two or three years ago, we were 180 degrees diametrically opposed to, you know, what our role is and what their mission is. Uh, now we've found those commonalities on how we can work together. They're concerned about their producers. Um, that 2.2 million acres, 95% of that are, are on private working lands. Mm-hmm. These are working farms, working ranches. Finding those edges, those corners, those little niches. Yep. Um, that's, that's where we do the majority of our work out there. So wow. um, we need to have a successful, uh, vibrant uh, agricultural community out there. We're, we're typically rural. Mm-hmm. Um, those communities are important to us. That's where you know our chapters exist. That's the space that they raise their money in, and that's where they deploy their money in as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's so it's so inspiring when you hear all this. And, and uh, you know, Nick has said some really nice things about Pheasants Forever members. And this would be a great time to tell Nick I've been a member for a long time. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, Nick, you can say you can say all kinds of nice things about us. That's that's good. But, uh, you know, Howard, as it's, it's a unique time to be interviewing you because you've been here since I mean, for all intents and purposes, I guess would be a way to say it, the beginning. And now you're reaching the end of your time here. In 2023, it was announced that that you're looking to retire. And I, I can't imagine it's probably totally set in yet just because you got enough to keep you busy each day. To, you got you know, one, one foot in front of the other. But in those moments that you do get a second to just ponder that reality, is it is it kind of a surreal thought to, to ponder that pretty soon here I'm handing this this incredibly important role of this incredibly powerful uh, organization that works on the behalf of all those those things that are like you, you said it so well so much bigger than pheasants and quail is that a strange feeling and, and I mean I guess how do you how do you work through that in your mind when you consider that your retirement is coming up so soon yeah, that's a great question, and, you know, I had to address it, you know, not 
in March where we made the announcement, this was something that, uh, in my mind, and, and I would say our leadership team here in the, within the organization, um, that has been in place in thought and practice uh, for two years. Mm. Um, so my comfort level in making it, my personal comfort level to make, to feel that the organization would be in good hands and be ready uh, for the next 40 years mm-hmm. is, it was critically important. So uh, aligning our leadership team, getting that ready. Uh, and, and we've made some, you know, significant uh, align, realignments uh, yeah. to be more efficient, to be more effective. Right. Um, you can imagine, you know, with the, the growth curve in this organization and um, the bus was moving down the road and you're building it out as you're driving. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so <laughs> the expediency yeah. of decisions, uh, the we're also the most, you know, to say we're the most efficient wildlife organization in the country is true. But the challenges that go with that would be sure we're when, when we were a one million dollar organization we had a bottom line net income at the end of the year of about a hundred hundred fifty thousand dollars to make mm. a business decision right when we hit 90 million we had about a three hundred thousand dollar bottom line right so sure. we're not making widgets right. right so we're not producing a profit to build buildings right or, yep you know mm-hmm. To your point, those dollars are hitting the ground. Yep. Right. They're they're going into new grasslands. They're going into new faces in the outdoors through our education and outreach. They're going into battles in Washington D.C. or at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're focused on mission, and that's where the dollars are being driven. So the machine is pretty lean and mean. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the decisions we make for leadership. Uh, and getting ready for the next 40 years are critically important. Oh, and yes. so, yep. and, and, and honestly, the, uh, a lot of this in, in my mind relates to our national board of directors as well. And I think we have currently the best board of directors that we've ever had. And that's mm. saying something. Yeah, We've had some incredibly talented people and uh, very successful uh, board. They're volunteers. Um, and I, trust them immensely to make the next best decision uh, for who's going to lead this organization into the future. Um, and, and I trust them. And I, I, I don't think there will be any wrong answers, but there will absolutely be maybe a different, obviously. Yeah, right. I'm going to, so I guess the moral of the story for myself is I feel um, the stars have lined up, right? We're operating at a the highest efficiency that we ever has as an organization coming out wow. a record year in revenues record year in habitat delivery we're going to break those records this year um so awesome. you know the new face whoever that may be and um it, it's a truly a national search so there's absolutely some internal candidates uh, but no heir apparent that's not mm-hmm. we don't have the depth and number of bodies in the organization sure. to do that uh, but there will be uh, individuals outside the organization who will come that um, and, and I'm not a part of that process. It's, it's not really appropriate uh, sure. for me yeah. to do that. Uh, but again, incredible amount of trust in our sitting leadership team and uh, trust in our national board of directors to, uh, they've got a tough job and yeah. I, I trust them to do the, mm. uh, the right thing. Yeah, that's, 
Yeah, that's that, that's a. I'm sure it's a challenging spot to be in in some ways, but certainly a much deserved break too. Uh, the nah, the build, you know, building the bus I, you know, while yeah, it goes. Yeah, it's interesting because <laughs> I don't you know I don't view it as a break. Um, it, so it'll be interesting. You know, this year, um, this isn't a a year of. Uh, you know, it's not a farewell tour in any sense. Sure. We've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We've got our call of the yeah. uh, Uplands campaign. Uh, we're wrapping up a $500 million campaign, yeah, and we'll ring the bell something. in February yeah. at Pheasant Fest in Minneapolis and wow. February 17, 18. Um, I'll say, you know, outward facing, I'll say goodbye. A new face will say hello. We'll mm-hmm. ring the bell on a $500 million campaign. Uh, and... Um, the organization will, so I'll say this, and I said this to a few people, um, the, the perspective. So one of the questions I'm getting now in this last, let's say, 300 days or whatever. Sure. Um, did I ever imagine, right? And, I, and you kind of mm-hmm. asked that question. Did you ever yeah. imagine this organization would be what it was? And I'll be really brutally honest and say, when we went from 1 million, could I imagine we could be 10 million? Yeah, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. And then when we were a $10 million organization, could I imagine we'd be 50? Never. Hmm. And then when we were 50, could I imagine being 75 million? Never. Wow. We're going to break 100 million That's now? Insane. I can imagine. I yeah. can imagine this organization being a 500 million. Wow. I can imagine. I couldn't ever imagine doing a million acres in one year. That's just an incredible. And we number. just did two point two. Yeah. I can imagine hitting three million. I can imagine doing five million acres in one year. That's yeah. just. That's um, just again, we're this is, you know, the organization has focused on who we are, what we do, uh, and we're looking at the landscape with a different lens. Um, Historically, right, it was about uh, hunters, pheasant, you know, it's very specific, right? Pheasant hunters, right? which, okay, there's, let's say, that right at this moment, there's 12 million hunters, right? Mm-hmm. I think the last survey from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We yep. think there's 1 million pheasant hunters. And we only have roughly 100,000 pheasant hunters, Yeah, right? So mm-hmm. there's our target audience, and that's who mm-hmm. we've, dealt with have lived for and they've delivered again our chapter volunteers are the really the heroes in this story uh there's there's chapter volunteers who have been here longer than me wow right that's awesome isn't that something yeah, yeah. that's right? awesome and there is they're more crazy. passionate today than they were 36 years ago yeah right and right. they're still doing it right and so wow. they're the champions in this story and um but what they've done <clears throat> again the things that they do on that landscape are more relevant to people who like to drink water, yeah. mm-hmm. clean water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People who like to fish. Can we keep that soil where it's supposed to be? Can we yeah. keep those egg chemicals where they're supposed to be? And can we have clean water? And we can mm. grow soil. And we can, people who don't hunt but love monarch butterflies. Yeah. Right? So all these things are stacking up, and right now there's more opportunity in what we call the right-of-way space. So roadsides, energy corridors, whether that's pipelines, uh, electrical, uh, rail line, abandoned rail lines, we can have a greater impact. There's more acres out there in that space than there are in CRP. And at the moment, 
you know, the cap for CRP is 27 million acres. Mm -hmm. uh, we're running at about 21 million acres probably right now. Mm -hmm. um, so um, there's a greater opportunity yeah. beyond what has been our historical target. So if you think about what we delivered last year, 2.2 million acres using that CRP tool, and now looking at another opportunity that's greater than that. Um, what in the upper Midwest here, there's gonna be 3 million acres of solar. Um, yeah. Instead of having gravel underneath that solar, let's put yes. Yes. under yes. there, right? Yep. We're in that space, we're having those conversations, we're actually doing it. Mm -hmm. um, the bigger players, the utilities, um, are interested yeah. in, in doing this and for all the right reasons, right? So um, there's so many opportunities here. The sustainability markets from big corporations like a Coca-Cola that whose shareholders demanded that their product be sus uh, produced sustainably hits their national uh, board meeting their board members are listening and they're saying, okay, we need to grow. Uh, in order to get corn syrup, mm -hmm. we need 1.5 million acres of corn to get that corn syrup. It, those acres need to be grown sustainably. Hmm. We're part That's of huge. that conversation with those local producers, having a conservation plan on those acres, um, a meaningful plan um, that's actually evolving and growing, right? Not yeah. just let's catch the corners and edges and think we're good they actually have a plan forward for how to do it better yeah, yeah you know at every level so to have big business driving sustainability and and in my opinion their word sustainability is our word conservation it's the same yep. definition mm -hmm. of what's that's really going to happen on that landscape yeah, that's a really good point and i, I want to jump in real quick because before we officially started the podcast we had we had talked with you about uh, and something that was amazing to me was that uh, the organization Pheasant Forever fills in every crack they can with conservation in any way they can get in. And that is so amazing. It was actually so a pheasant, right, inspires Hoxie Native Seeds. Well, the Prairie Farm, uh, which is what we're doing now, was inspired by Pheasants Forever. We, we just kind of sat down as a team at Hoxie Native Seeds and we said, okay, we're fulfilling CRP. We're helping hunters get seed. But other companies can do that. How are we making a change? What are, what are we doing? And so that's when we kind of came up with the idea of, well, let's push backyard pollinator. Because there there are some initiatives, but I, we haven't found someone who's driving a force hard, or, or at least someone with, there are, there are people doing it, but they might need a little bit of weight, a little bit of help. Um, and that's kind of what we want to be here for. And, and it was totally inspired by Pheasants Forever saying, hey, we're going to put, we're going to put pollinator and grasslands anywhere we can. And, uh, and so we wanted to kind of be a part of that, but that's something that's amazing is you guys are so creative and where you find places for grassland pollinator to go. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and boy, it's, uh, you know, drive down any road, any highway and look at the landscape mm -hmm. from a, again, from a different lens, right? You do, you take for granted, it's all corn, it's all soybean. And then you see these little niches and nooks and whether it's a, a pipeline, whether it's a energy corridor, right? Uh, power lines yeah. with grass underneath. It doesn't have to be a monoculture yeah. of switchgrass. It can be a viable, vibrant, diverse, uh, you know, wildlife prairie. You know, we, we, we can't put the prairie back. Right. Right. Yep, we can. Um, so um, we're looking for those 
you know, not just those cracks, but you can imagine abandoned railroad lines or even functioning railroad lines. Those corridors can be managed for wildlife um, and, and, and every, every benefit, including sequestering carbon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. That's huge. That's, that's right. our future. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, we've kind of been talking about the growth of Pheasants Forever since its inception. But, um, you know, from just a outside of Pheasants Forever, things have, things, major things have happened during your time here. And, and even, you know, the official founding year, I believe, is 1982, correct? For yes. Pheasants Forever. So you have this incredible perspective of seeing some drastic changes, not just in the organization, but our, in our country as a whole during that time period. Um, CRP, that came around in, I want to say, 1985. Was, mm-hmm. that, was that when, when, Sounds that right. was, when that was rolled out? The ethanol mandates of the mid-2000s. Um, you know, just overall, the industrialization of ag, where we see small farm America phase mm-hmm. out, bigger farms, uh, you know, managing the land, for yes. lack of a better term. And then even we've talked about the effects of the pandemic. You know, could you kind of like maybe paint for us, and I, and I know I hit some specific points here, but how has that whole picture shifted in your near 40 years here with with pheasants forever i mean it i'm sure it's you know, earlier when we were talking you're talking about the up and down roller coaster i'm sure it's felt like that a lot of times always but, but i mean maybe kind of talk about some of the high points and low points that stick out to you but then when you finish it up could you tell us if you feel like the trend is is going in the right direction overall mm-hmm. for our country so you know organizationally i would say there was there's been evolutions Uh, i mentioned earlier i think in the forefront we were a food plot organization which Hmm. allowed us to actually get our foot in the door with producers Mm -hmm. right they knew how to grow corn and we could give them free seed that they would keep you know through the winter for you know if it was food or shelter for those birds, at least, you know, the perception was there. Yeah. Um, and we became known within those local communities. Uh, we did evolve into a uh, absolutely a, uh, a grasslands organization uh, doing really quality work on that landscape with those same producers, right? right. Because they right. trusted us. They knew who we were. Uh, the evolution of quail forever um, coming to us. And that's, you know, all of 15, 16 years old mm-hmm. and not 40. Uh, but right, the true. success of pheasants forever in our in that pheasant range, that upper tier of states, from honestly New York all the way out to Washington State, uh, the quail uh, resource was you know we've lost ninety percent of our quail, so yeah. now how do we go into that space and have an impact using that same chapter model, mm-hmm. um, using so many of our great partners. Uh, again, like NRCS and uh, Department of Natural Resources and NIFWIF to, for another acronym for you. <laughs> um, but so in so in 2000, you know, timing is everything, uh, and keeping your eyes and ears open to uh, and being thoughtful about how we evolve and how we grow, um, not being satisfied 
with, you know, we can sure celebrate our success, but what's next, right? How, what's the and, right? Not the yeah. or, what's the and? Mm, um, yeah. So in 2000, I was lucky enough that the American Wildlife Conservation Partners were formed. Um, so, you know, this isn't, this wasn't my concept in any stretch. I was invited to a meeting with, at that moment, about 20 other uh, leaders from the community. So the CEO from ducks and turkeys and, again, elk. Uh, we all came together, spent a couple days, flushed out what would become the American Wildlife Conservation Partners. And instead of thinking about relationships, I wonder what those duck guys are doing, why they're doing it. Um, probably a little bit of adversarial attitude toward, you know, all of us had with each other in competition. Sure. Uh, getting together and understanding that um, those individuals were just as passionate about their mission and about their teams mm. that they built. And we've found ways that we would work together, let the differences go. And here's the commonality, like the work in Washington, D.C., to fight for a farm bill um, and bring, again, three to six million voices instead of our 100,000 by ourselves. Yeah. Um, so we're in our, we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of that, those groups coming together, and it's now 50 wow. of the largest wildlife organizations. Yeah. Um, and it works exceedingly well. The relationships we've built at a personal level with those organizations, we've become much more transparent in everything we do. Um, our HR directors meet and share information. Our chief financial officers meet and share information about how we can do this better. Wow. Um, so um, these are good friends. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't always have to agree. You know, that's that's the, the easy part. We don't have to agree. There's no bridges being built if someone chooses not to sure. go on our testimony or if we don't go on somebody else's testimony. Um, there's enough respect there to understand that each organization has their own unique uh, mission drivers, things that yep. work, um, yep. mm. that don't work necessarily across lines. Um, that was critically important. Um, and then there's a, at that same moment, and I'm not gonna go into the details of this, but I, I, I met two women who had created uh, Becoming an Outdoors Woman initiative. And what I learned from them was the mission was more important than the brand hmm. and it's a longer story but um, it just hit me both again personally and professionally that that's what this should be about right it's not shouldn't be about the pheasants forever the quail forever brand it should be about the mission yeah and there's enough success to share uh, there's enough mm. partners out there that we should be working with mm -hmm. um, and let those other things go and yeah. that has served us uh just i think incredibly well and i think that's been catchy in our outdoor space right. as well um, if we can be um, magnanimous if we can uh, bring people together for all the right reasons we can let that other baggage go and we don't yeah. have to again this doesn't have to be about pheasants forever it can be about the acre it can be about the the project itself yeah. mm -hmm. um, and, we, and we can celebrate all the organization's names and brands together and yeah. you know we do that through build the wildlife uh, program build the wildlife area um, which is we're taking that nationally so as you know we we buy anywhere from five to ten thousand acres of uh, land a year we 
it in the end we don't want to own it and we typically don't own that mm -hmm. it, then we'll buy it and then do, uh, deed it to a state department of natural resource for a wildlife management area wow, and that. every single person who helped donate those dollars or organizations everyone's name goes on that rock yep that's right? cool. this isn't about pheasants forever's project this is about build a wildlife area campaign so and it's open to the entire public so We've done so many of those things. We're now taking that program nationally. Uh, we're excited about that. So learning and building tools in one state or one region, now how do we deploy that in 40 other states? And you know that's kind of what we're doing here. Um, those 350 wildlife professionals out there, um, got on average, we have two or three grant, uh, grant doors that help us fund those positions. Yeah, right. Yep. So, um, again, this is there's so many opportunities, and there's empty seats around the table that we're looking to see who else should be sitting there. What else can we do out there on that landscape? Sure, man. That's a that's a great answer. All right, here's this is going to be your most controversial question here, Howard. So we come from Iowa, and Iowa is a bit of a maybe we could say it, put it nicely a curious case. Hey, there we go. I love it. <laughs> Very pro Iowa. Yeah, 2017 <laughs> Iowa governor's hand. There we go. Love it. But but Iowa is a bit of a, I mean, it's a, it's a story, right? That when you would have come on with Pheasants Forever, Iowa would have been a destination pheasant state. Yes. It was a pheasant hunter's paradise. In fact, I once saw a... Uh, it was, a, it was somewhere in Wisconsin, you know, it was like some comical thing. It was like, it, it, uh, lay, you know, I, I lived in Wisconsin. I went to college in Wisconsin. I, I lived there for a year after college, my first year of marriage. And uh, there is a bit of a, a, a superiority complex that exists in, in Wisconsin. You know, the whole go, pack, go. And uh, maybe it's just because I'm a Bears fan. But, but uh <laughs> But uh, they had this fun. It was it was a funny thing. It had a picture of the state of Wisconsin, all of its neighbors. You know, Minnesota and Iowa down here, Illinois, and uh, I'm trying to think who else. Michigan, I guess technically is on the other side of the lake. But but uh, they had you know some kind of like like slam on each state or whatever, or you know way of dismissing them. You know, and of course Wisconsin was labeled like the promised land or whatever, and then Illinois was like, you know, don't make me sick. Uh, Minnesota was we're the better lake state or something and then Iowa just labeled pheasant hunting <laughs> and I was like you know that that kind of dates that that little funny poster there a little bit but um, it's not that way anymore I mean you can still have some great pheasant hunting down in Iowa yeah I mean if you find a good local right hunting guide you can they can get you where the birds are at but things have changed up and down in Iowa and I mean could you kind of speak to, to what you've seen happen in Iowa as far as pheasants and habitat goes during your mm -hmm. time with pheasants forever and then maybe just even a little bit of advice you would give to us Iowans to mm -hmm. to maybe get back to where we once were so absolutely and you know and I don't think Iowa's unique in that space we've seen sure. agricultural practices change mm -hmm. which you know, in 82 evolved from, boy, we're, we're not seeing pheasants on the landscape in 
1982, what could we do about it? Mm. Um, some smart people, Dennis Anderson and Jeff and uh, some of those bodies said, let's create something, right? Let's raise money and do something. Sure. Uh, so they created Pheasants Forever. Now, you could look out to Pennsylvania, who used to shoot a million pheasants a year, mm. right? They're wow. probably shooting really ten or 20,000 right now. And wow. so now the same, so this evolution of what's happening on the agricultural site, and I think in Iowa specific, you know, to your question, um, I think the stars, you know, you always hope the stars line up. Mm -hmm. in, in the history of Iowa, I think the stars were not aligned. And so where you had CRP uh, coming out, and, and CRP is a pendulum, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Looking at commodity prices, and CRP looks wonderful historically when it's a dollar eighty a bushel, yeah. and producers are making money, and there was a just a swing in that pendulum, and all of a sudden corn is at eight dollars. Yep. Everyone right. wants out of CRP. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's pressures to get out of the program, to buy out of the program, and and realize I'm. You know, I'm trying to encapsulate the story, which really is over 15 to 20 years right. of right. this swing. But what happens when all that those CRP acres came out? We also Iowa was hit with two incredibly, you know, hundred-year storms. Mm. Whether that was yeah. flooding or the worst winter in decades yeah. or a hundred years, all slammed in at that same time. Um, the a good point. once those acres were out, uh, producers were struggling, and boy, I know even as little as what four years ago, um, there, I think there was a mentality from from a lot of producers that they could grow themselves out of these challenges, which mm -hmm. you really can't. Right. 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 So even when there was eight dollar corn inputs were, yeah, mm -hmm. challenging, and that didn't mean that producers made money on those acres now the hope um is i think precision agriculture is here right and it's been here for those four or five years that information right. is on all of that equipment um so many of the producers are now i think getting up to speed and recognizing that they need to look beyond farm total farm income and look at their landscape on a square acre or even a square meter they have the capacity mm -hmm. to do that what acre makes them money what acre historically doesn't make them mm. stop applying seed chemical uh, utilizing your gas yeah um, and put it in a program uh, like crp and there's 10 other acronyms that those producers can uh, programs that they can get into that would give them a safety net that would put more dollars economically yeah. in that operation. Um, and I think the rest of the, the community and the rest of the world needs to recognize the benefits that they get from that decision. We need to give those producers an economic viable decision yeah. to do that. Yes. Um, yep. And then recognize that we are getting benefits. You don't have to be a farmer to know that you're getting water quality, yeah. soil benefits, wildlife benefits, carbon sequestration benefits all these things benefit the broader uh public and they need to understand that our congressionals need to understand that so yeah. these pendulums that swing back and forth uh, and they're multiple so you could say the you know when you go from 380 corn to eight dollar corn 
that has an effect. Yeah. What does it mean to that producer individually? Um, how do you take a long view on a CRP contract that's 10 or 15 years? That's a, that's a tough call for yeah. them and we it's need to make commitment. it viable. Um, but we, we need to recognize how can you put a value on water Right, that's yeah, the science in deal. that is incredibly difficult. Um, yeah. We're we're seeing with this administration, um, how do you put value and how can you market a uh, a carbon market? How do you manage a carbon market? Mm. Right, what's the baseline yeah. and what's the improvement? Right, that's what you're really buying forward, is you know not what you currently have. Right, we already own that. Right, how do we improve that to sequester more carbon? And what's the value of that for both the producer uh, and those investment vehicles that you know potentially uh, can help with that? So there's different ways to look at that landscape. And, and again, I just boy, anecdotally, because these precision tools exist, um, I don't know how to say this. Um, anecdotally, what we're hearing from some of the younger producers are. They know the right thing to do, but their fathers or grandfathers are still involved in the operation and they're doing it old school. Yeah. And yeah. until that changes, they won't be really allowed or willing to, right? And this is family business and I get yeah. that, yeah. right? Um, they need to bide their time and wait when they're allowed to make those decisions. Now, yeah. make no mistake, there are some old dog farmers who are students of uh, their operations and do it probably be bigger and better than anyone. But, you know, we're not seeing a huge, right? I mean, there's almost no reason why 80% of the farms shouldn't be utilizing these precision tools. And then yeah. I think in reality, it might be 10 or 20% at best. Hmm. And big, even big corporate farming, they're going to need to make a better business decision on what they should be farming, what they shouldn't. Yep. Um, Farm the best, save the rest, right? Isn't that sure. the, that's the motto? Um, I don't know how you, you know, can grasp um, what's happening in the Ukraine and mm -hmm. the, the ripple effect of that across all yeah, yeah. Uh, commodities. Good point. Uh, include, you know, and then we're back to, well, the, the fertilizer and chemicals, you know, is in a crunch as well coming out of that same geography yep. of Russia and yeah. Ukraine. So how do we, what's our role in that? Um, that's a, that's a, a tough call and I don't, you know, that's too big of a mind blowing, you know, to try to capture all that information and try to project what that should mean to us. But, you know, I, in my simplistic view, you know, I'll go down to the producer level. They still need to feed their families, make a good economic decision, yeah. and yep. don't knee-jerk the fact that, you know, again, gross, you can't spend your gross dollars. You can only spend your net dollars. Yeah. Yep. Um, and if there's a better net to be in a conservation reserve program instead of losing yeah. money, producing on a acre that never should have been farmed to begin with, and... Again, the cost of losing that soil, the cost of yeah, that's uh, a, that's putting a, those chemicals, you know, in a stream bed yeah. instead, and what we're dealing with uh, with hypoxia in the Gulf, um, yeah. that's all ag-related. You know, that's you know, ninety percent ag-related. You know, yeah. what you're living with in Des Moines, you know, having having to have a denitrification plant uh, in order to 
you know, turn the water tap on and take a drink of water. Yeah, um, it's true. There are natural resilient systems that mm-hmm. can be put in play to alleviate that. I so, think they're called big blue stem roots. But there we uh, go. <laughs> yeah, let's put in those yeah. buffers. Um, and again, I think there should be an economic driver for oh, those yeah. producers to yes, do those things. Absolutely. And we need to allow them and give them the tools to make those decisions for, the again, the greater good. And I think a lot of it, because farmers see, let's, let's, let's even round it down, $5 an eight, or a bushel corn. I think last year, Iowa averaged $190 per acre, or 190 bushels per acre. Um, that... That's great. That's almost $1,000 gross. But when your input costs are rounding up and rounding up and they're going up and they're going up and, and there's actually some chemicals we can't even find anymore. They, they're nowhere to be found. Uh, when you, and, and fertilizers going up, all these things. Well, and the, but some farmers see, well, $280 like for CRP. I can't, like, I can't make money off of that. I need my $1,000. Well, if you don't have to do anything with it for 10 years, you know, the then you start looking at that net number because yeah, right. um, gross numbers can be real deceiving. And I think, uh, but, and, and then a lot of farmers just, they just don't know, you know, they right. don't. And, and some of them haven't actually done the math. They've done the overall math, but when you, the precision ag, when they go down to the acre or even per field, you know, they, a lot of them have 20 acre fields and kind of have in different areas. You can figure it out. What, what are your worst producing acres and get some, get some, uh, um, what I call resoiling, resoiling roots back in those yes. in those grounds, and, and help our water and, and help. I and I think taxpayers are willing to pay that that money when, especially that when they're educated and they understand. Oh, we need to take care of this land because it affects us, it affects our health, it affects our children, uh, it affects our moods. I mean, psychologists even are finding a relationship between water quality and, and your overall mood during the day. I mean, Absolutely, it, every part of our life it affects. So, yeah. It's, yeah. uh, so I'm, so I'm, you know, I'm an optimist, and I think you know those tools are out there, and I think they'll mm-hmm. evolve. The fact that they exist now, this isn't yeah. anything we're waiting for. Um, utilizing the tools, and there's more expertise on that landscape. Um, we're just a drop in the bucket. I think we've got at this moment uh, roughly 15 uh, precision egg specialists, uh, again funded by uh, aid from uh, Purina. From, from cotton, from corn, from sorghum, um, all of these national trade groups are helping fund some of these positions. Hmm. Uh, we're seeing them out there, and we're excited. Uh, uh, yeah, the tools that Bear has, like Climate, uh, Land O'Lakes has Trutera, or those precision tools. Um, these are out there, exist. Now how do we apply them and continue to tell the story? And, uh, you know, it's no different than... Uh, farming methods out there. We're going to leave. Uh, we're going to continue to create dust bowls out there. We're yeah. having these climate yeah. extremes out there. So how do we? We've spent a hundred years trying to move water faster off our landscape and down our streams. Now we're in a different mindset. How do we slow this water down? Yeah. How do we hold it? And again, these are natural systems, resilient systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of spending money on concrete trying to build barriers to prevent flooding upstream we can hold it with those natural sponges right those yep. again grasslands those wetlands uh, especially you know for us for us up here in the prairie pothole region of the dakotas minnesotas you know northern yeah. iowa um, these are natural systems that exist uh, and sure we can repair what we've damaged 
uh, at about a tenth of the dollars it would take to pour concrete. That doesn't work. Yeah. Mother Nature has proved that right. we can't yeah. compete with right. her. Yeah. Um, so um, there's there's opportunities here, um, and and I think we're seeing that um, right now. We're seeing the benefits of that. Um, so there's hope for the planet. I'm telling you. Yeah, that's feels good to hear that. And uh, yeah. you know that when we interviewed Bob, he he uh, kind of shared a similar outlook. You know, that that outlook of optimism, which I think is important to hold on to because that's what keeps us motivated, keeps us in the fight to to find improvement. Yeah. So that's yeah, great to hear. Well, before we uh, close this one out, you guys have a little bit, of, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but just a small little campaign going on right now. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of, uh, I mean, man, that's a, that's a big deal. And it's a, it's a big lift. It's a big lift. It's uh, I think it's just an awesome thing as you, you know, as you look into uh, retirement and seeing that, you know, seeing that through as, as, uh, you, you enter that phase of, of your life and just kind of a crown jewel, hopefully here at the end of, uh, at the end of, uh, your tenure, uh, can you kind of tell us what the call of the Uplands campaign is about and what the, the goal is there? Yeah. Um, you know, if we looked at, you know, the success of the organization and how we've been growing and let's say nice and neat, we've been growing at 10 or 12%, which, you know, in any other business you'd smile and, think you're doing great well in this conservation space we're we've lost millions of acres of grasslands in the last decades yeah. in the last two decades yeah. the size of a nebraska Man. right in the face of all the things we're doing right we're still going sliding backwards and that was yeah. the decision with our campaign to turn that around wow um, and 10 12 percent growth wasn't going to get us there we're going to have to we actually have to go vertical yep. right get on a wholly different plateau um you know to you know as we look at our record revenues and again more importantly actually delivering 2.2 million acres in one year now we feel like we're getting on top of this and that's what the really the campaign's about it's about it if it you know i could spew the numbers but we're accelerating the number of acres we can deliver in one year. Mm -hmm. um, the campaign was to allow us to do 9 million acres uh, in five years. We're going to blow through that. Wow. Uh, right? That's fantastic. So yeah. we've been in the campaign now for uh, about five years. We'll wrap up in, again, February uh, with that. But it's also, you know, we want to introduce, you know, 1.5 million new faces into the outdoors. Yeah. Um, so for our organization, if you think about um, why we're here, it's again, it's about habitat. Now we have four enduring strategies as an organization, habitat, education and outreach, advocacy, the work we do, whether it's in Washington, DC, or trying to deliver I will yep. in Iowa, yep. um, and then access, right? How do we create more opportunities for those who wanna participate in the outdoors? Um, Every one of those strategies is to deliver habitat. So if we want to mm. deliver, introduce a new face to the outdoors, it's in the hope that they'll help us deliver habitat, wow. right? Sponsoring a high school shooting team, sporting plays team, or a trap team, scholastic team, right? It's not for the shooting even of itself. It's a pathway to introduce a young 
person to the shooting sports with the hopes that they'll maybe take a step into the outdoors and maybe hunt and would then be understand the role of conservation yeah, and help us it. deliver habitat. I wow. love it. Right. So it's we have so that intentional. very intentional. Um, the work in Washington, D.C. is to build a bigger, better toolbox, whether that's um, a conservation reserve program, uh, environmental quality, right, e equip, mm -hmm. uh, CSP, uh, grass, you know, our grasslands uh, initiative, right? Let's yep. find a new tool um, outside of that, you know, U.S. Ag and maybe it can sit in U.S. Interior uh, Department uh, to do those same things on the, across that landscape. Um, so, you know, we're looking at ways, uh, something as simple as uh, the transportation bill that was passed in 2018. We were able to insert one little paragraph in there, no money, but one little paragraph. And by the way, this is where CRP actually started, was we were able to get words that said when they're doing roadside work in the transportation bill, they need to consider wildlife and pollinator hmm. impacts, right? So instead of, again, putting a monoculture yeah. grass across those roadways, they could do something with a greater impact, more natives, more pollinator mixes, wow. yeah. and impact monarchs, ground nesting birds, right? All these yeah. things. Yes. Now, transportation bill is one of the largest bills out there. Now there's no money in it, in that paragraph. They have to consider it, how that will come out. But that's where CRP started. They had to That's include awesome. wildlife as a benefit. It was later that dollars were added to drive yeah. that decision. Yeah. So we're envisioning that the transportation bill, we could then evolve that, right? Because yeah. if we line that up with, you know, what are the best things to sequester carbon, right? Oh, That's a different tool than, you know, preventing snow from, you know, crossing that road in December in Iowa. Yeah. Yep. So, um, you know, we're looking differently at that landscape and what are the tools that we could apply. So these things happen in D.C., but at the end of the day, we would equate, you know, a monoculture on a roadside to not habitat, mm. where if we could do uh, uh, pollinator planting, that would be a good acre of habitat. Oh, yeah. absolutely. So yeah, those are kind of how we're trying to look at this broad landscape. And then, again, this is... We could look at sage grouse, you know, in the 11 yeah. northwest states or the lesser prairie chicken mm -hmm. uh, in the southwest states here, you know, and we have initiatives there. Um, could be burrowing turtles, um, and which is the, you know, at the end of the day where money comes from to do quail, honestly, yeah. right? It's the same yeah. habitat. Um, we're doing golden wing warbler stuff in uh, forest regions in Pennsylvania. Well, that's good stuff for woodcock. It's good stuff for grouse and, you know, edge birds, yeah. whether that's pheasants or quail. That's good stuff for everybody. So, mm, yeah, yeah I, love, I love how you put that. So uh, before we, we wrap it up, how can people get on board with supporting the campaign? So I'm, I'm sure, if, you know, the people who get to hear about the most are members, but can anybody uh, donate to please <laughs> <laughs> so you can absolutely go to pheasants forever inc or quail for i'm sorry pheasants forever.org you can go to uh, quail forever.org on our site so look for call of the uplands um, your donations being a member being involved being a volunteer um, put something back uh, pay it yeah. forward and, and if it's not 
you know, if, if pheasants or quail, there's other great organizations out there who are, you know, that are great partners of ours that we're working with. Um, you know, it's important to us that, um, again, uh, the mission's more important than the brand, but uh, right. we could sure use your dollars. We'd, we'd make sure we used it efficiently and effectively. Mm. I promise you that. Um, nobody does it better than Pheasants Forever and Quail. That's Forever. true. That's, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Something okay. else worth noting, you guys have a pollinator week here. Yeah. Coming June 20th, week of June 20th, Yeah, I think. so June 20th through June 26th. Yeah, uh, that is awesome. It's, it's National Pollinator Week, and so yep. Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, if you join, so for $35, uh, you'll not only get the membership in the magazine five times a year, but you'll get uh, some wildlife plugs. Uh, that you can plant. You'll get a, a planting guide, a, uh, a t-shirt, a Pheasants Forever Pollinator t-shirt, and a Habitat sign. So, um, That's so cool. you can yeah. do it at 35 or if you want to be a rooster booster, knock down the big $75. Yep. Wow. You know? So um, this, is, this is fun stuff, and I think something you could engage your children with or your grandkids, yeah. something fun. You know, go out there and get those hands dirty. Um, and have them start paying attention to what's happening in there. And, and again, this is this is great backyard stuff. It mm -hmm. doesn't have to be 10 acres or 100 acres. Yeah. This yep. can happen right, you know, in your local garden or right in a little box, you know, yeah. that uh, the kids in your family can pay attention to. Yeah, yep, for sure. Yeah, so make sure you get, you get on board here with the call of the uplands as that comes in, uh, rounds out. Finish, crosses the finish line in February. Yeah. And uh, that'd be a cool place to be, by the way. Pheasant Fest in February of 2023. Yeah. It's a party. Yep. It's a party. I, I was really kicking myself for not making it to this last year's, but I had something else going on. I don't remember what it was. It was on Some member. Some member. I know, I know. <laughs> but I I am uh, bound in. Oh, yeah, I'll make sure this. I know, I know. It worked perfectly because you, you would be chatting and then. This camera will go off, and we just go down. Well, yeah. If you you should be at Pheasant Fest and the Quail Classic, um, we've got uh, there's something for everybody. Mm. You know, opening uh, the show is the Bird Dog Parade. Yep. And so you know, it typically happens Friday around noontime, and we have boy, thirty plus different hunting breeds that you know wow. walk That's up on impressive. stage, and you get an introduction as to why that breed, what they do, what their talents are, whether it's flushers or pointers uh it's the highlight and they open the show and all things dogs it's all things uh uh youth village uh wild game cooking uh is incredibly popular we do have our vegetables on the plate so there's a landowner help desk awesome. where any producer or anyone can uh sit down with our wildlife professionals uh we can pull up satellite imagery of the property you own whether it's a working farm or oh, that is uh, awesome. and we can help you with a conservation plan for free that is um, really cool yeah so that's a, that's a lot of fun and um uh and then and of course you know from a fundraising uh there's lots of stuff to buy you can never have a good enough good outdoor stuff out that's there, right it's a new pair of boots new jacket or maybe maybe a new shotgun so, yeah yeah uh, but go. that's all there uh and we you know, in Minneapolis, you know, we'll have over 30,000 people come through the door. Um, and it, so That's it's fantastic. a party. It's a yeah, party. Yeah. And it's like-minded people. Yep. Um, you know, we have the, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening there on the Pollinator Village. Um, so 
something for everybody. 30,000 of your best friends, right? That's yeah, a, exactly. That's uh, exactly. Yeah, wow. it sounds like a great opportunity. I'm I'm uh, really uh, hoping to go. I'm planning to go this year. Uh, so uh, make sure if you're listening in, you uh, consider. Uh, I know it sounds kind of crazy heading to Minneapolis in February, but uh, it, it will be well worth the trip. And uh, you get to see as uh, the bell is rung on the Call of the Uplands campaign. And um, uh, it'll be Howard's final uh, yeah. pheasant fest of, uh, of a wonderful career. And, a little bittersweet. Yeah. And we're very thankful for all your hard work through the years. And, and really, I mean, keeping PF going and then bringing on uh, Quail Forever along the way. And, I mean, just a, a remarkable tenure and, and the – you're not a guy who likes to take credit, I can tell, but but much is deserved there. And, yeah. and uh, it, you know, leadership shapes an organization, and mm-hmm. and it's very clear that that uh, Pheasants Forever does it the right way, and and that's a that's a big reflection on on you and your character as a leader. So so thank you for that. And then I, and I gotta ask, what's next after you retired? You got any got any uh, cool plans lined up? Yeah. Um, so my, well, I've got two sons, uh, 35 and 33, and that 35-year-old awesome. has knocked out three grandkids in the last two years. Oh, man. So we've got a two-year-old uh, grandson, and then uh, that same son that my other, that same son followed up with identical girls. Oh, wow. And so that is just spectacular. Yeah. And we've yes. had some, obviously, kind of working remotely quite a bit. It's... Uh, We've had some really quality time over the last okay, two years here great. that otherwise probably wouldn't have happened. So um, the one who must be obeyed, my wife has <laughs> figured out exactly, I think, where we're going to spend a significant amount of that time. Yeah. And then it's just great. Uh, and there's, you know, I'll still be involved, I think, in the community in some way. Sure. Um, you know, I'll definitely uh, step away from, you know, the board of directors uh, at Fez Forever, Quail Forever, that's not appropriate for me to sure. sit there anymore uh, and, or, or get in the way of, you know, the new yeah, leader, whoever sure. that uh, would be. But, you know, obviously my heart and soul are still a big part of the organization. But there's, again, so many great partners out there that I uh, currently sit on some other boards that I may uh, stay on. Some Fantastic. need to transition in the new uh, Pheasant or Quail leadership. Uh, but um, I'll still be in this space in some manner. There's, uh, yeah. you know, obviously over this amount of time, there's so many friends uh, and relationships that were built that won't evaporate. You know, they'll yeah. stay intact. So kind of looking forward to that. But also traveling and maybe doing a little bit more hunting. Yeah, um, there you go. <laughs> you know, that, it's, uh, that hasn't been a big part of the, you know, job for me. Yeah. Uh, I've got the Reaping best. what you're sowing finally. Yeah. 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 yeah, and then, you know, it's, and, you know, I probably hunt maybe three, four times a year. Sure. Um, but when I get to go, it's great, right? I get yep, to go yep. really great places with, you know, wonderful people. Yep. Um, and I typically, for me, I think about hunting as if I'm hunting with my boys, right? And yeah. Mm-hmm. We go places where we typically, uh, no one knows what I do, or and so it's us three. Yep. Uh, or maybe some of their buddies or something like that. And so for me, that's hunting. So hopefully we'll add a little more of that to that yeah. but uh, you know a son with a small family now yeah well time those, constraints those, there and those, those grandkids are gonna get need to yeah. go out to hunt here before too long so. right exactly so uh, wow. I'm, I'm ready for that but some travel 
as yeah. well, a little more travel here. So we'll, we'll see. Awesome. I have no kind of preconceived notion of uh, what that'll look like. Because we, um, uh, again, I'm focused on what we need to do here in the next year yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and continue to build this out and deliver the campaign. And, yeah. you know, let's hope maybe we can set records for three years in a row. That'd be yeah. fantastic. You know, so be we'll, really we'll keep cool. working on that. Yeah. Well, we uh, extend yeah. our biggest thank you and our uh, our biggest of best lucks. Well, so. and thank both of you and uh, for thinking of us and inviting us on the program. This is great. Oh, so yeah. We're honored to have, Very appreciative. have you guys. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, remember, you can head over to the Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever websites and join up as a member yourself. Nick said it. We're the best people on the planet. That includes me. So, therefore, Nick, you said I'm one of the best people on the planet. <laughs> But, uh, no, you should uh, definitely join up. Consider going to Pheasant Fest. And if you are unable to do those other two things, you certainly should find a way to get in on this incredible, we'll call it a movement, an initiative, a movement, uh, the call of the Uplands. Uh, just get on with that campaign and uh, donate time. Take somebody, you know, part of that is just getting more people involved in the outdoors. Take somebody hunting. Take somebody fishing. Mm -hmm. Take somebody to a place where they can appreciate grasslands more and see all the value that it adds far more than just hunting value, um, water quality, soil quality, air quality, all those things critical to a healthy, balanced life, uh, not just for the critters, but for us as well. And remember, conservation happens one yard at a time.